Welcome to the PSD Cast with your host, Jason Lumberg at Power Systems Design. Now we stand in an interesting moment in history, and, and not just because of COVID-19. Government mandates and market forces are push, pushing electric and hybrid vehicles and renewable energy production as in an all-time high. However, the U.S. still lags far behind the rest of the world in renewables, with the one notable exception being wind power. The U.S. is second in both wind energy uh, installed capacity and production behind only China, and apparently six of the ten largest onshore wind farms are based here in the States. So how do we move the needle and, and perhaps recapture the top spot for the U.S., and what role should government play versus industry? On the line, we've got Kevin Wolf, president of Wind Harvest, and his company just launched a campaign to commercialize his compact H-type turbines with the potential to capture a ton of untapped wind energy. And we thought... Kevin would be perfect to shed some light on the renewable front and where we're going as a country. So, Kevin, welcome aboard. And as a nation, we've made a ton of progress with renewable energy, but it's still somewhat niche. I read that renewable sources only constitute about 11% of U.S. primary energy consumption, and wind turbines specifically were the source of about 7.3% of total U.S. utility-scale electricity, electricity generation. So, What's your assessment of where we stand as a nation in terms of wind energy production and its untapped potential? Well, Jason, thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk with you. Yeah, it's, a, it's quite an interesting opportunity out there. You know, we have this enormous wind resource through the Great Plains. Every Great Plains state from Dakota, the Dakotas all the way down to Texas, from Wyoming all the way over to Illinois, even Indiana, there is amazingly powerful winds at 80 to 100 meters above the ground. And you can see in Texas, because it has its own grid, that they've got over 20,000 megawatts of wind there. The rest of the states are lagging in large part because of their utility structure and the lack of transmission lines. But that resource is, uh, is, uh, un is unbelievably large. Um, and it could power the entire country, but you just can't get the energy from there out to the rest of the country very easily. So the other sources of uh, wind energy are, for the East Coast, it's going to be offshore wind farms. These are more shallow uh, waters. They can more easily install these um, turbines like they are on the, around the United Kingdom and on the Baltic, and we could put in tens of thousands of megawatts of wind off the East Coast. And there the winds just blow so consistently and so much that it's a fairly solid source of energy. Not perfect like a coal, you know, like a nuclear power plant in terms of providing baseload power, but it's a, an enormous resource from Florida all the way up to Maine. And those are, of course, some of our biggest cities are along those coasts, and they don't have easy access to solar as well. But the wind offshore is the future for the East Coast. For the West Coast, it is a more difficult problem for offshore energy because it's windy. It's amazingly windy offshore of California, Oregon, and Washington. But the ocean is deep there. So that requires floating turbines. In California, they're talking about 10 cents a kilowatt hour for floating technology in 2030. Well, that's twice the price of what we are presently able to do for wind energy uh, in, in the United States. So it's going to be a difficult process to get the 
floating technology up to scale enough to drive that price down to be competitive with, for example, solar and batteries in the state of California. But I, I, I think the most, the most interesting and easy to develop resource for the West Coast is what we, what I, we call near ground winds. So that is in these places in the West Coast where there are mountain passes. Like in California, we have the San Gregonio Pass near Palm Springs, the Tehachapi Pass with 3,000 megawatts of wind out near the Mojave Desert. We have 1,000 megawatts of wind out here near San Francisco Bay where the Carquina Straits sends cold ocean air up into the Sacramento Valley. And these areas are small geographical areas that have intensely windy uh, topographies where the wind squeezes in between mountains and funnels and speeds up. But they're small areas and they've been built out pretty much to the max with the tall turbines. You can't squeeze more tall turbines in closer to one another because they create wake and turbulence problems for their neighbors. So they have to be spread out pretty wide apart. Well, this leaves a lot of untapped wind and it's near the ground in these places. So, but there is no technology that presently can use the near ground wind because the near ground wind is turbulent, it's gusting. And these tall turbines with a single point where their blade connects to the drivetrain drive at only a single point, they cannot handle turbulence. They can't handle turbulence from their neighbors nor near the ground. So they're placed up higher above the ground, and there it is, a layer of wind under 100 feet tall, 100 feet above the ground, that is just waiting to be tapped. It needs a different kind of wind turbine, a vertical axis turbine with blades that attach at two points to the drive shaft. That's our technology. We think we can double the energy output from existing wind farms, maybe even triple it, given uh, the, the, uh, the way the land is. And the science says that near-ground wind turbines can suck in faster-moving wind from higher above the ground into the tall turbines' rotors, increasing their energy output by 10% by or more, according to some of the studies that are coming out of Caltech and Stanford. So it is a big potential resource for California, Oregon, New Mexico, Washington, Colorado, um, where these near-ground wind resources can be tapped. And the other interesting part about that is those wind farms are already built. Their roads are already in place. Their transmission lines are already there. They're running at 30 to 40% capacity factors, but with a layer of near-ground wind and batteries, they could increase their capacity factors to 70 80% or more. So the potential is very bright for wind energy across the United States. And as the prices drop, the, the competitiveness for wind becomes such that it's driving the utilities to find this low and develop this low-cost resource. Right, right. So um, you, you touched on um, you know, wind harvests. Um, it's, it's crowdfunding campaign and, and their new turbines. Um, may, maybe you could um, elaborate a little bit on that. You know, what, what sets them apart? And um, maybe as part of that, you could explain what, what the coupled vortex effect is that I, that I read about. Well, so the, many years ago, uh, 
Sandia National Labs and the National Renewable Energy Labs were advancing two different types of turbines. Sandia was doing vertical axis turbines, the Darius, kind of the egg beater type turbines, and uh, NREL was doing the horizontal axis, the propeller type turbines. And they were both competitive, but the vertical axis turbine had an inherent disadvantage. The blade returned back into the wind, and when it returns back into the wind, it creates drag, and that limits its efficiency to about 40%. The horizontal axis turbines, they yaw into the wind, and the wind turbine, the blades never return directly back into the wind, and they have a much less drag. So they could get efficiencies up to 50%. When this became clear, Sandia National Labs dropped out of developing uh, vertical axis turbines, and we had the world went to propeller type horizontal axis turbines. And that pretty much stopped that development. But our company, our inventor, Bob Thomas, figured out that if you place two vertical axis turbines with straight blades a meter apart from one another, Bernoulli's continuity principle of a fluid in a narrower space speeding up would offset that drag, significantly offset the drag, such that two turbines a meter apart will get the efficiencies, will reach the efficiencies of the tall horizontal turbines, around 50%. And that is the breakthrough of the coupled vortex effect that allows verticals to compete in terms of efficiency. Now, the well, problem I... also... Go ahead. No, go, go, go ahead. <laughs> the problem with uh, vertical turbines also is that they're going to be smaller. If you're going to only collect wind at below the blade tips of the tall turbines, you're in about 100 feet above ground. Well, that's going to limit the size of your rotor. The horizontal turbines get ever larger rotors. You know, now, 2 megawatts, 5 megawatts, 10 megawatts. They're now talking 15 megawatt rotors with something like 80 meter long blades, just unimaginably large machines. If you're going to keep under 100 feet, those turbines are going to not reach the efficiencies of scale of material per rotor swept area. So they're going to be inherently more expensive, except when you use the existing wind farms. The existing wind farms, the roads are already built, the land is already paid for, the transmission lines are already in place. You can drop in our turbines. Um, much easier. They transport in simple um, containers. They're installed by small cranes and small crews. They can just be added quickly to existing wind farms. And even though they're more expensive per kilowatt to build, they're less expensive per capital expenditures for a project than building a brand new wind farm. And that is the, the main benefits that these short turbines uh, create is a lower price uh, build out of existing wind farms than it costs to say build new wind farms in California. Oh, very cool. Well, Kevin, be, be, before I, I let you go, um, let, let's talk about the way forward. Um, you know, this is this is obviously 
a hot topic with, with election season in full swing. We got, we got the first debates coming up. You know, when, when, when it comes to promoting wind power, um, and, and I'm sure you probably have uh, some strong opinions on this, what's the, the proper breakdown between government and industry? You know, do we nudge it along or let the free markets decide, or, or do, do we need more federal regulation or less? Well, if I, have, if I could wave my hand and make something happen, I would take away all the subsidies for all energy. And we would have a boom in near ground. We'd have a boom in wind and solar across the country because the fossil fuel industry gets a way more subsidies than the renewable industry. We have a, you know, something like um, $20 billion a year in 2019 went to fossil fuels and about $5 billion went to renewables. And these, uh, that's just direct subsidies. Then there's all these indirect subsidies where they get um, other ways of lowering their taxes and lowering their costs. And then the fossil fuel industry has all these third-party pollutants. Uh, the um, Energy Institute calculated at $5 trillion a year in unpaid-for um, costs that the rest of us bear for the burning of fossil fuels. So let's get rid of the subsidies for everything, and renewables will go like gangbusters. But that's not likely because the lobbyists and the coal and the fossil fuel industry put a lot of money into affecting our elections and affecting Congress, and they're not going to let go of their subsidies. So given that, really the only way then to compete is you've got to give subsidies to the other um, sources of energy so that there is some ability for the two types of energy to compete. But the other interesting part of the whole thing is the cost of money. When you have a solar or a wind farm, it's all about your capital costs up front because the fuel is free. But for a coal or a natural gas plant, they're going to have to pay that coal and gas plant cost for the fuel for 30 years. So if you come in, for example, and have to have an 8% return on capital for a wind project, which is normal, but if you could get capital at 4%, the levelized cost of energy almost drops in half. So from $0.05 cents to $0.03 cents a kilowatt hour if the price of capital drops. So I think the future is that we find ways to bring in 4% capital into renewable projects instead of 8% capital, and then we'll have a massive increase in renewable energy. Um, and we won't have to deal with you know, how much is subsidized and where and all the rest of the stuff, it'll naturally go to the cost of uh, to renewables because their fuel is free. Hmm. Well, some, definitely some interesting food for thought, and, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, some of these issues that you discussed can come up in the, the next couple of weeks and months uh, on the way to the election. But uh, I, I want to appreciate, uh, I, I appreciate your time, Kevin. Um, on behalf of PSD, I, I want to thank you for your time. And to our audience, thanks for tuning in. Stay safe and healthy and have a great day.